This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I was 17 years old. I was a senior at Edina East High School in Edina, Minnesota. I was a starter on the varsity basketball team. I had lots of friends. I lived in a big white house with green shutters on the corner of Oaklawn and Dunbury in Edina with my six brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, an intact family. And for four months, I could not stop thinking about taking my own life. And in the midst of that pain and suffering, I got my first Bible. This is it. I still have it. It's been recovered, chewed by a dog, but it's still here. And in that senior year, actually before that senior year, on June 17th, probably of 1976, I read the passage that you just heard, the first scripture reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And I eagerly underlined, and that's actually from my Bible. There you can see the date that I marked it. I'm very impressed with my neatness, by the way. Um, and I underlined those words. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Verse 4, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. And God spoke to me. The living God spoke into my suffering, and he changed my life. I encountered the living God as Savior. And he saved me. And he is saving me. And he will save me. Because that's who our God is. He comes to us as a Savior. This last couple of weeks, I've talked to some of you who have had similar or nearly similar Isaiah 43 stories. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture in which the living God ushers us into a First, pulls us out of our small story of suffering. By small, I don't mean to minimize it. I'm just saying that our stories of suffering often make our lives feel really small and cramped and dark and confined and isolated, like we're all alone. And when God speaks to us, his story of suffering brings us into his story of our suffering. He broadens that story. He shines light into it. He brings hope into it. And he brings us his bigger story of suffering. I want to invite you to turn with me in the, the Bibles in front of you to page, I believe it's on page 603, this wonderful, beautiful text from Isaiah chapter 43. And as we look at this, we're going to th see three things about God's bigger story to our suffering. First is that suffering happens. Second is that even though it happens, you are not alone. And the third thing is that not only are you not alone, but your suffering is not useless. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. Actually, God may have a mission for you through your suffering. Let's look at this. So first of all, suffering happens. Suffering happens to rich people and poor people. Suffering happens to good people and bad people. 
Suffering happens to Americans. Suffering happens to Nigerians. Suffering happens. We would like to think that we can manage our lives so carefully, especially many of us in the more affluent Western world, that we can somehow control our life, that we can navigate around suffering, that it won't befall us. We think we can really do that. And yet, it happens. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, when you walk through the fire. Notice those two little words, when, not if. Like if you pass through suffering. And notice that word, through. You won't be able to always go around it. At some point, you're going to go through it, or it's going to go through you, or both. Over 20 years ago, there was a very popular, best-selling self-help book, probably one of the best self-help books ever written, by a guy named M. Scott Peck called um, The Road Less Traveled. Does anybody remember the first sentence in that book? What was it? Life is difficult, period, new paragraph. That's the, and that book became a bestseller. And M. Scott Peck said in the next paragraph, he said, our problem for many of us is that we think life is easy. And then he said, we think life should be easy. And it's often not. Sometimes it is, but it's often not. And our Lord and Savior Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, in this world you will have tribulations. Not you might, not possibly, not greater than 50% chance, but you will have tribulations. So Jesus said it before M. Scott Peck did. Now the original passage, the original context for this passage is very important because this is written to and about and for the Jewish people God's covenant, beloved people, and yet they, they have been invaded. A foreign army has been invaded. They're, they've burnt the cities. They've captured and deported people. They've scattered them to the four winds, literally. They've brought the, these invading armies, have brought them across dangerous rivers. They've brought them to a foreign land where they don't want to be, and now they're in exile. And now they're maybe thinking about the dangerous journey back. Do you know today in our world, it, it's a lot like what, how many people are living today. So the United Nations just reported that we crossed a new record, a new threshold the world has never seen before. More than 100 million people uprooted and forced to flee from violence, war, or persecution. That's a third of the population of the United States. That is great suffering. But there's many stories of suffering. There's emotional suffering, there's physical suffering, there's relational suffering. Somebody you want to love you that just can't or won't love you, that really hurts. There's a form of suffering when we watch people we love suffer and we can't take it away. That's suffering. And there is another form of suffering in our world today, especially in Again, the affluent Western world that I think is one of the primary ways of suffering. It, it is the fear of suffering. 
the potential suffering that's out there, that something might happen. We might, something might happen to our jobs, something might happen to our finances, something might happen to our kids, something might happen to our health, something might happen to the health of loved ones. That is a, the anxiety and the dread and the fear about that has become a colossal source of suffering in our world today. There's one suffering that we don't fear, maybe near as much as we used to, but we should fear. And that is a potential suffering of being judged by a righteous and holy God who is opposed to sin and every form of human wickedness that we all participate in. Actually, if you read the book of Isaiah, do a little word study on the, wor the word fire. Just do a little Bible search, how many times fire appears in the book of Isaiah, and it's often associated with God's judgment. So at the very end of the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, it says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, for by fire the Lord will enter judgment. That will be a form of suffering. So what do you do, how do you live in a world of suffering that we cannot avoid? That M. Scott Peck was right, but Jesus was right even before him. In this world, you will have tribulations. Life is difficult. Well, here's God's bigger story in this text and all throughout the Bible. First, there is suffering, but you are not alone. You will not go through it alone. Here, look at verse 1 of Isaiah 43. I love these two words, two of the most beautiful and powerful words in the entire Bible, really. But now or maybe translated, then, now. But now. You were lost in sin under the judgment of God, but Christ your Savior died for you, and you are free from sin. You, we were orphans. Now we've been adopted by God the Father. You we're a man or a woman of hate or anger or lust or shame or fear. But now, God has reached down and touched your life, and he's setting you free. It's the gospel we find in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, in this great part of Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he just continues to lay it on. But then he says in verse 4 of chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, by God! But God, who is rich in mercy, loved you with great love and made you alive in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel then, now. But God, but now. We believe that can happen at Church of the Resurrection. We really believe that God can still do that. So the but now opens up to us verse, the end of verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. Two times, fear not. I did a little exercise this week. Think of the thing you fear the most. Name it. Bring it before the Lord. I'm going to draw a little blank in a prayer journal or on a piece of paper or a scrap of paper. Draw a little blank. And what is the thing you fear the most? Write it, write it down in a word or two. And then hear these words. Let these words 
from God's word originally to the Jewish people, now to us today, let him wash over you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Fear not, for I am with you. And then look at these words. I have redeemed you. That means I bought you. I paid a price to get you back. I paid a ransom to get you back. Now, all throughout this passage, it has echoes of Jesus' life and ministry. They are just there. You just, as a Christian, you just cannot read this text and not see them. Echoes. What did Jesus say? I've given my life as a ransom for many. So God, the eternal Son, fully God, fully man, becomes the ransom for us, our redemption. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Who talks that way? When somebody says, you're mine. It could be a very mean, abusive person, or it could be lovers, or it could be parents talking to their children. We say that every time we baptize a child. You are marked as Christ's own forever. We believe that at baptism, Jesus tells a child, you are mine. You belong to me, and I love you. It's like a mother picking up her child in the middle of the night and what's the mother do? The, the child's scared. The mother begins to rock. Does the mother give like a, 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 an argument like, well, let me give you seven reasons why you really don't need to be afraid. No, she just rocks, maybe coos, maybe shush, maybe sings a lullaby. It's intimacy. It's trust. That's what these words are. These are words of trust. These are words of covenant love. God speaking to his people and always, always, you see throughout the Old Testament, God speaking to the Jewish people, I love you because I love you. That's the only reason I can really come up with. I love you because I love you. That's the best reason I can give. Verse 4, more words, God's love for us. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. They're all... In the original Hebrew, in the perfect tense, which means it was true in the past and it's still true now. There's a history of this trueness. So you were precious in my eyes, you're still precious in my eyes. There is nothing you can do to become unprecious in my eyes. You're still precious. And then look at that little word, honored. You are honored. Now, I want us to see how literally revolutionary this is. This is the most revolutionary thing that could possibly happen. So in every honor-shame-based culture, which is most of the cultures on the face of the earth, and we are sort of honor-shame-based, we still are, we have huge remnants of it, so we're still basically an honor-shame-based culture. So you always, the rule is, the rule is you always give honor to the person above you. So in Cambodia, there's these complicated ways of, of bowing, right? Dean, Steve, where, where there's different levels of bowing depending on how important the person is you're bowing to. In Papua New Guinea, where my son lives, I sometimes go and visit, and people will come, people like, like almost my age, and they will come, and they will give me a hug, but they never give me a hug like you would give me a hug. They get down, and they give me a hug around my knees, and it feels it's really awkward, but they want to show honor to me. Because, I don't know, I guess because I'm 
they, I'm an American, or my son's a doctor, or I don't know why. But it would be really weird if I tried to do that to them. It would be very inappropriate. So you always honor the greater. Do you see what God is doing in this passage? He's reversing that. He's subverting how almost every culture on the face of the earth works and lives and has rules about. He's saying, I honor the lower. I honor the weaker. I honor the powerless. And we see this theme run all throughout the Bible. It's in Hannah's song in the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. It's in Mary's song, the Magnificat, which we see every Advent, where Mary has this beautiful poem, and she says, He, the living God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy. You see how revolutionary that is? How that changes how we look at things in the world and people? And then it just says simply at the end of this list, and I love you. As if, that, as if that wasn't enough. And I love you. I've been sitting with these words all week, and I, my only goal was just like, Lord, let these sink in. Like not just here, but let them just sink in to my being. Let them wash over me. The living God is a God who walks with us in our suffering. I am with you in your suffering. Again, echoes of Jesus. First chapter of the Bible, Gospel writer Matthew, the Lord tells, oh, here's the name for my Messiah. Here's the name for my Savior. It is Emmanuel, God with us. There's echoes of Jesus here. So you're suffering. The bigger story is you're not alone. Bigger story is also that your suffering is not useless. In other words, God is going to use your suffering to help you as a representative and witness of the living God to walk somebody else, to walk with somebody else in their suffering. That's a beautiful thing. And I, I know many of you in this congregation have experienced that, have lived that in different ways, in very beautiful ways. So the living God walks with you through your suffering, not so that you just say, whew, glad I got through that one. No, that's part of it. We give praise, but also so we'll be his witnesses. That's the gist starting at verse 8 in Isaiah 43. It says, bring out the people who, who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Who are those people? Well, earlier we found out those are the children of Israel. They hear the word of God, but they don't always put it into practice, just like us, just like all of us. They are stubborn. They're disobedient, just like us. And yet, they are my witnesses. Verse 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. In other words, God is saying, put me on trial. Put me on trial and bring your witnesses. We'll put all the gods on trial. You bring your witnesses, I'll bring mine. You know who my witnesses are? Perfect, amazing specimens of humanity. My witnesses are my people, my chosen people who are sometimes stubborn and disobedient and sinful, but I love them. I'm crazy about them. And I have redeemed them, and they are my witnesses. And you know what? 
They may not be perfect, but they have a story. They have a story to tell. They have a story to tell of a God who walked with them in suffering. And they are willing to tell that story. They've been through rivers, and they've been through waters. They've been through fire, and they've been through flames. And they have a story to tell you if you want to listen. They have a story of God's faithfulness and covenant love and mercy and kindness. We, the people of God, we are the ones that have experienced the but now. And we have a story to tell. And and God wants to make the church a place where that is embodied. That message is embodied that the suffering God will walk through you. And all of us have a part to play in that. We are the ones who have experienced Jesus as Emmanuel. We are the ones who have experienced his presence in the midst of suffering. I read a novel this summer by the Kentucky farmer, poet, essayist, novelist, etc., Wendell Berry. Um, it's a novel called Hannah Coulter. And in this novel, there's an older woman named Hannah who's reflecting back on her life and telling the story of her life now as an old woman. And she goes back to the point when she was a young newlywed, deeply in love with her husband, Virgil. And they've been married for a couple years, really in love. He got shipped off to the war in World War II, and he was never heard from again. Obviously, died in the war, but nobody ever found him. But he was just assumed dead, and indeed, he was dead. And she's reflecting back on that time of suffering. And she says this as the narrator, I don't think grief is something we ever get over or away from. Every night there are people lying awake grieving, and every morning there are people waking up to absences that never will be filled. But we shut our mouths and go ahead. How are you? Fine. The thing most dreaded has happened at last. The worst thing that you might have expected has happened. Even so, how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. I read that, and it hit me. The church is a place where it's okay to be not fine. It's okay to be not fine. Bishop Stewart once told me, he said, two reasons why we plant churches. One, and we plant a lot of, we plant churches. That's part, an integral part of our vision. And this summer I had the privilege of visiting four of our church plants in Minneapolis and in uh, Wisconsin and um, in Chicago and in Aurora. And they're doing really well, by the way. I love those churches. So Bishop Stewart said, we plant churches to preach the gospel, to bring people to Jesus, to bring a revival of word and sacrament. We also plant churches, he said, to alleviate suffering. I thought, I've never heard that before. That's why you plant a church. That's one of the reasons. Well, it might not be the first and primary reason, but it's one of the, reasons, one of the really important reasons that the church would be a place where we walk beside people in their suffering, not only inside the church, but outside the church as well, where people are suffering. So it's a place to come and not be fine. 
How you doing with your grief? Not fine. How you doing with that sin that just clings to you, that you keep stumbling into? Not fine, actually. Not this week. How you doing with that addiction or fear or anxiety or depression? Last week, good. This week, not fine. So throughout our conversations, throughout our res groups, throughout along our, our prayer along the side, as we come to the Eucharist, this is a place to be not fine because we have a Savior who is oh so fine <laughs> and who will save us from all of our heartache, who will save us from our pain, who will save us who will be with us, walk with us, who will forgive our sins, who is greater than all of our sins. So, Lord Jesus, our one and only Savior, the one who has saved us, is saving us, will save us when we open the door to you, Make us a people who know that you walk with us in our suffering, that we are not alone, that it's not useless, and be with us so we may be there for others and walk with them in their suffering. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.